Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. Thanks for joining us for another episode. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Associate Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the Editor-in-Chief for the War Room. Over the last few years, many people in the United States, to include many in military circles, have been part of big, important, but often uncomfortable conversations about the history and memory of race, racism, slavery, the Civil War, white supremacy, and civil rights in our country. Joining me today is Brigadier General Retired and Dr. Ty Sedgley. He served in the Army for more than 30 years, where he retired as the head of the Department of History at the United States Military Academy at West Point. And this is where we had the privilege of meeting and working together. Some of you out there may also recognize him from his viral video from Prager University about slavery being the cause of the Civil War. He is currently the Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, and most recently is the author of the book Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, which was published by St. Martin's Press in February 2021. Uh, Ty, it's great to have you here on a better piece. Jackie, it's always great to talk to you. It's uh, we, you know, we served together for for several years, and uh, I'm I'm honored to be on your podcast. Thank you. Great, great. So I want to start with you know the overview question, which is that you know the premise of the book is that you grew up uh, a young kid in Virginia who was absolutely enamored of Robert E. Lee, and uh, he was your hero, right? And now uh, a few decades later, he is not your hero anymore. Uh, And in fact, I'd call you a pretty outspoken uh, and vocal critic of Lee, uh, but also the Confederacy and the cultures that venerate them and what they stood for. Uh, So can you just start off by telling us a little bit about this journey that you have been on? Well, I think to start the beginning, I grew up uh, in Northern Virginia in an outpost of Southern patrimony in a way, uh, believing that Lee was a great Southern gentleman. And I wanted status as a young kid, as a, a young boy. And the status that I saw was with Lee and people that liked Lee. So on a scale of one to 10, I would probably say I rated Lee at an 11. And even though I was a good Episcopalian boy, was a head acolyte and you know went to church every Sunday, I would have rated Jesus at about five. So my journey was that for, from, a, from a very young age, um, I and my culture uh, revered Lee, and in in Virginia it revered Lee. When I was in Georgia, it revered Lee. I did go to Washington and Lee University to become a a, a good Southern gentleman, and uh, and 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 then I've spent a you know a long long time in the Army, a long time at West Point. So my and and the Army and West Point all revered him. So my culture, which was a white Southern culture, a, a, a very privileged culture, uh, revered him really my entire life. And it wasn't until, you know, much, much later, uh, even though I, I knew that the war was about slavery, you know, 
when I was teaching at West Point, it wasn't until later that I really came to grips with who Lee is, what he did, and what the Confederates stood for. And so this book, Robert E. Lee and Me, is really about this journey through the through the cultures that you have experienced, you know, from growing up through college and through the army. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why uh, why you chose to write the book, and you know who who did you have in mind as your audience when you were when you were writing it? Well, it comes with a story. You know, as good historians can't tell can't tell anything without can't give a straight answer without a story. So I was I was chair of the memorialization committee at West Point, and and I'd already and we could talk a little bit later about sort of my epiphany. But the reason I had to write it like this is that I was I was uh, creating a new memorial room, and we did not have one local place, single place for the fifteen hundred West Point graduates who died. Uh, giving the last full measure of devotion to the nation from the War of 1812 through the uh, the Wars of Terror. And we had lost over 100 graduates killed in the war since 9-11. And the, the community was reeling from this and needed a place where we could memorialize our heroes. So we came up with this plan and uh, the money, uh, the, the location, everything. But then the question was, where sh- who should go in that room? And I argued passionately that it can't Confederates can't go in because they fought against their country, abrogated their oath, um, killed U.S. Army soldiers for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And by the way, where they were going in Cullum Hall was actually created by an anti-Confederate who said, "I will never forgive those who forgot the flag to follow false gods," and and put into law that no unworthy subject should go in there. So I, I give this to our superintendent at the time and and the academic board, our leadership, and tell them this just vehemently, and they say. No, we want to bring people together. And the exact words were, we want to, we don't want to be like the Sunni and Shia fighting forever. We want to forgive and get along. And I just went out of that room with my, with my head down, just feeling awful. And I went back and talked to my wife and I said, Sherry, they voted against us. How could they do this? And she said, Ty, nobody understands why this, you're so passionate about this. You're bludgeoning them with the facts, but you're not telling them your story. I went, oh my God, she's right again. So I realized that if I wanted to convince the, the, the white men around the room, I had to do a different story other than the facts, because it turns out evidence doesn't change people's history. History is dangerous because it goes after our identity and our myths. So the only way I could do that was to tell my story, my dangerous history uh, of believing in Lee idolatry and believing in the lost cause. And that I found had greater resonance with people than just giving the straight history. I mean, that that story is so powerful. It reminds me, too, of uh, General Martin Dempsey when he was the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who said, you know, winning arguments isn't about who has the best facts. It's who has the best context. Uh, And, you know, when you walk in a room, you better have the best context. Uh, And of course, we want facts to matter as historians facts matter a lot, what, you know, what really happened. Um, but we understand that we have to put those, uh, put those into, into these broader narratives and to, to really, like you said, wrestle with myth and identity. Um, in the process of writing the book, were there things that you discovered for the first time or rediscovered that were important to you? Yes, I, all the way through. So I went in each stage of my life. So I wrote chapters on the the, the books that that influenced me. I wrote chapters on the city of Alexandria where I grew up, the high school where I went to in Walton County, Georgia, Washington and Lee, the Army and West Point. The first one about about Alexandria, Virginia is I had no idea 
that Alexander and Arlington used to be part of the District of Columbia. In fact, George Washington demanded that it be part of Washington. And that's where, you know, the room where it happens, the, the, the great Hamilton song comes from. And they created this diamond-shaped 10 square miles. Well, it, the, the Virginia, Alexander and Arlington, where the Pentagon is now, retroceded in 1847 to protect the slave trade. And Alexandria became one of the leading hubs of the slave trade um, uh, up until the Civil War. And then Alexandria, my city, spent about 10 hours in the Confederacy before it was occupied by, by, the, by the U.S. soldiers. And, and then, um, uh, you know, but it became a bastion during the, during the uh, era of integration of, of, uh, of segregation. And so we have more streets named after Confederates in, um, in Alexandria than any other city I know. Uh, and it was a reaction to integration. So that was another thing. That there are all of these reactions to integration that I found throughout. And, and so I found the other thing that I found out, I think that I'll tell for our, our military audiences, is the oath that we take. So I was um, I went to uh, Washington Lee University and I was going to take my oath of office. And I took my oath next to a portrait of Lee in Confederate gray. Uh, and then I received a commission in, surrounded by Confederate flags in Lee Chapel. And then when I raised my right hand and took the oath, I didn't realize that that oath that we take was written in 1862. It was an anti-Confederate oath. When it says purpose of evasion, when it says enemies foreign and domestic, it's talking about Confederates. So here it was, I took an anti-Confederate oath surrounded by Confederate flags. So I found these stories throughout. And I go back to your, your saying about, about Martin Dempsey, about the context. What I realized is I had to tell stories. And that's where we as historians, are, I think, are most effective is when we can tell stories that people can remember rather than just the machine gun of facts, like fact, 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 fact. We can tell these stories and that's when it can resonate and maybe change people's minds. One of the other things that struck me when I was reading, in addition to the stories, in addition to the really you know easy sort of conversational style and tone that you take, which is is quite refreshing to read. You also don't pull any punches, right? You call racism where you see it. You you use the phrase white supremacy. You use, uh, you know, you call the lost cause a lie. And those those strike me as really important uh, rhetorical choices as well. In addition to these narrative sort of journeys that you that you take us on, can you talk a little bit about your your choices around how you name the the cultures that you're trying to to really break down? Jackie, you, you, you hit one of the main themes of my book. You really did. And there were a whole bunch of words that I thought about and changed. The first one was, I try not to use the Union Army. I use the U.S. Army. People think the Union Army, and they think of you know, the old Marx phrase, it was, it's in the dustbin of history, that the Union Army th- fought only one war, and that was the Civil War. No, it was the U.S. Army. Lee killed people, in, killed U.S. Army soldiers. They wear the same blue uniform that I wore. Uh, for so many years, that same uniform that Washington picked the color uh, blue for the Continental Army. So the Union Union and U.S. I, I changed. Plantation. I stopped calling it plantation because it it evokes memories of wind whispering through the Spanish moss and Scarlet sitting on the front porch of Terra, um, you know, asking uh, for ice, sipping iced tea, saying fiddle dee dee. No, I call them enslaved labor farms. Uh, I, I call, um, I don't call that their, their mistresses, they're, they were raped. Black women were, were raped. And I don't say slave, I say enslaved women. Um, 
And it's the same way with the, with the lost cause. I looked up what lie meant, and it means something that that is is done on purpose for a nefarious purpose. And boy, I can't think of anything that is more nefarious than than creating a system of white supremacy. I call the South a racial police state uh, because an apartheid state because that's what it was. And I call the Army a white supremacist organization uh, for much of its of its existence. So I think the language that we use is is incredibly important. And I know that um, I, I quote uh, John Updike, who a great writer, and he said that telling the truth is a ruthless act. And he also said that the writer's job is to rub humanity's nose with the facts. And I know that's what I'm doing. And part of it is that I have, I don't know if I'm a convert. I think I'm more of an apostate, actually. An apostate being someone who believed a, a civic religion and the lost cause was a civic religion. And now that I am so understanding of what it was, I'm going to fight it in any way that I can. And using language and calling these things out for what they actually are is so important. And so, yes, I do that throughout the book of using lie, white supremacy, racism, uh, and all of these words that, that, that may get some people upset. I'm okay with that. We need to be upset. The journey, I think that many, I'm, I'm a Southerner as well, different, a couple decades behind, but um, the, the things that we grow up hearing and using the language uh, and that, for me, that revelation happened in sort of in graduate school often about how language really affects our understanding. And I've gotten, I've gotten to the point now, my two cats are named for a United States Army uh, Civil War folks, General Sherman and uh, Admiral Farragut. And so this this idea that language shapes how we how we think and how we approach topics strikes me as as a really important one and one that I think comes comes through. But it also is like very clearly made some people really angry. Uh, so one of my favorite things right now is following you on social media where you're posting right one star Amazon dot com reviews. Why do you think it's generated that sort of like visceral response? Um, and why do you think it's important to post those one-star reviews uh, for everybody to see? Well, I, I, this started when I did the uh, uh, this started when I did the video. Uh, this you t- you mentioned that Prager v- video that has had like I don't know it's had more than thirty million views, and I got I had no idea it was going to be a big deal. I mean, I did it before the Charleston massacre, and it came out afterwards, and I got. I mean, Stars and Stripes wrote a bad article about me, said I was too close to a right-wing organization. The nation criticized me for being a propagandist for the Army. The Army investigated me whether I was doing political speech. I got hundreds of emails to my West Point address, several which were death threats. So when this came out, I knew it was coming. But this time, I knew it was coming, and I wanted to poke fun at these people because nothing makes them look sillier than to post these things, uh, and, may, and which they're just they're ridiculous. and. Uh, laughter, it turns out, is a really effective way of defanging people. Uh, and I also wanted to show that um, just from a, a perspective that that these knuckleheads are doing that to me. And I know that they do it to me. And I'm a I'm a retired brigadier general. I'm a long I'm a white uh, Southern man. But they often do this to women. And um, I wanted to show people that, uh, that, that about, that they do do it to me. I mean, they, they, but, but it's not, it's not, I'm not going to let them get me. So for when they did the civil war one, they trolled my looks and, and I do have a face made for radio. I'm, I'm a perfect face for this pie, podcast, Jackie. And, you know, I'm bald and my, I've got a very unusually shaped head. So, I mean, these, they, they sent this hundreds of emails to me about the alien nature of my head. 
uh, which were hilarious. But I wanted to defang them through humor. And I'm hoping that I'm doing that. So I, I try to do it not every day, but um, but to keep doing this, to let people know that that you can have your message and those knuckleheads are not going to stop me uh, from talking the truth. I love it. Like I said, it's it's been some of the most amusing uh, things. And it's it's stunning, really, what people will, are, will, will write and what people will send people uh, via email and to their employers and all sorts of things. I've gotten just a, just a bit of that as well. So, Ty, let's... Let's talk about West Point. So we worked together. I was there in the department from 2008 to 2012. We taught in our mill art class. It was in a you know two semesters, and we taught I don't know nine or ten lessons on the American Civil War uh, in you know every for every firsty class for a long time. And I always thought West Point just has this really complicated relationship with the Civil War, with the Confederacy. Uh, and all and all sorts of things. What did you What did you notice from your time at West Point in you know in the classroom as the history department head, and also you know working so closely with the memorialization committee? Well, I, this is really where I started figuring out. I went and round and looked. So I, I guess let me tell the story about how I actually came to start start um, uh, telling my story and really having my epiphany. So I was I was living on Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee Housing area. And I was walking one day to get some West Point swag for my family at the cadet store. And I walked back past Eisenhower Barracks, uh, past Pershing Barracks, past Grant Barracks, named after our, you know, some of our greatest uh, generals. And then I got to Lee Barracks and I looked at this sign and it said Lee Barracks. And I stopped and looked at that. And then I looked east about 20 yards. And, and you know, Reconciliation Plaza, which I write about in the book, which is so problematic. And there's a, there was a new, something that had gone up while I was gone between, I was, I, I, I left in 97, come back in 2004. And there was a, a new monument there to Lee. And I just, I looked at it and stared at it. And I said, why are there so many things here named after Lee? So I started running around campus and I found a dozen things that were named after Lee. And I said, why are there so many things named after Lee? And so I went to my boss at the time who had chaired the memorialization committee. He didn't know and didn't care. So nobody could answer this. So I went into the archives and the archives are what changed me. The history changed me. Um, the facts changed me. And what I found was that in the 19th century, um, uh, West Point banished the Confederates from memory. So there were none in the cemetery, no Confederate buried there, none on our great uh, Civil War monument, battle monument, where it says the War of the Rebellion, none there, none in Cullum Hall, our memorial hall, um, at none. In fact, I argued in, a, in a, you know, a much earlier journal article that Duty, Honor, Country, which was written in 1898, is also an anti-Confederate monument. And I found that Congress came very close to shutting West Point down in 1861 and 1863 because, as one senator said, there are more traitors at West Point than any institution since Judas Iscariot. So I found that out, but that didn't answer my question. When did they come? So they came in the 1930s, the 1950s, 1970, and the early aughts. So when I started looking at those, I realized that, that they came in reaction to integration, at least the first three tranches. In the 1930s, when Lee Road, Lee Gate, all of those were named, was when Benjamin O. Davis Jr. and the first uh, black cadets came back to West Point in the 20th century and graduated. So uh, that's when a Lee portrait went into the Soup's house. So that was a reaction to integration. The, the famous portrait of, of Lee in our library in Confederate gray with an enslaved servant in the background is actually from 1951 
It's a reaction to the army being forced to integrate. And it's a Southern secretary of the army who was slow rolling integration, biting it tooth and nail that ordered West Point to put that up. And 1970, when Lee Barracks is named, is, is also uh, a reaction, I argue, to the minority admissions program starting for the first time. Now, the ones in 2001, 2002 are hard to explain, except that the classes that put those up, 1957, 1961, uh, are, w- grew up with the lost cause. So, I, so what I found was that these are reaction to integration, and that just torqued me something fierce and made me look into this. And so when I was a memorialization chair, I killed more than one Confederate, uh, somebody that wanted to give money for a Confederate lecture series or whatever, uh-uh, never got past me. Uh, so I, I fought it tooth and nail, but again, I didn't tell my story initially, but West Point does have a complicated relationship. It shouldn't. It's easy. They fought against their country to destroy their country. Our mission at West Point is very clear, and we should get rid of those things ASAP. So this this really leads me to to the next question, which is, it's not just West Point with a complicated relationship with the Confederacy and with Confederate generals. Um, Carlisle, where the war college is, you know, 45 minutes from Gettysburg, it's in Pennsylvania. That's that's Yankee territory, you know, full stop, has a complicated relationship with Confederate uh, generals sometimes and, and the artwork that's in hallways and things like that. What what is it about the Confederacy uh, that is that is that has this stranglehold on this institution that that you served for for multiple decades uh, that, you know, that I work for now that people all over the country um, like why why is it still why is it still such a such a thing yeah well I looked at the artwork so I got the book from the uh, War College Foundation that had each art each class's uh, print you know that Dale galley and those whatever those prints are called and I looked at and I I did my first draft I had that in there but um, it just it was one story too many and I had to cut it out when I would when I went down to kind of edit it down. And what I found is most of them were, a lot of them were done in the nineties. After the war starts in 2001, they, they pretty much go away, but boy, in the nineties, they really were there. And in the eighties as well. So, and, and, and at least half of them were these peons to the Confederates. So the question is what, what do they have this hold? And I think they have this hold because of the lost cause myth that was uh, uh, perpetrated on the country and bought by everyone, including the army. Um, and, you know, that lost cause myth is, and, and I'm sure many of your readers or, or listeners know, the war was fought over states' rights. No, it wasn't. It was fought over slavery. Uh, enslaved people were happy. That's an abomination. Slavery featured the rape, the lash, breaking families apart for profit. Um, the U.S. won because of more manpower and materiel. Well, it had a little bit of that great on them, but it also had more people because immigrant labor was there. It didn't have slavery, which was so, so terrible for the South um, and all of the enslaved labor left the South and fought for the North, 180,000 troops. Uh, uh, it, Reconstruction was a failure. And it, I mean, that's just not true. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, equal rights, education, 2,000 black men served with honor in elected positions. Grant was a butcher and a, a drunk. Ulysses S. Grant's the finest officer uh, in, in the Civil War and had a strategic vision, was just amazing. And at the top was this great scholar, Robert E. Lee, who, I mean, the great soldier who ever lived. So all of this became a, an ideology based on white supremacy uh, that first the South bought, but then the entire army and the nation bought. So that's why we named things after them. They have this hold because 
it's a hold of white supremacy. That's what it's a pillar of it. And what people sometimes don't realize and should is that it is a pillar of white supremacy. And the army has a long history of a white as being a white supremacist organization. So if those two things are together, then we have to look carefully at why that is. And that's what I try to do in this book is say, why did the army believe this so much? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a lot of a great historian to realize because the army was racist. It was. And that can even when the army is trying not to be racist, as it starts in the 70s and 80s, it still has this lingering racism that that has not been expunged. What what you just said reminds me of our broadest understanding of of culture, right? When it's when it is simply the water we swim in and we do not even you know, we do not even notice what it is. And so it has to be called out, it has to be named uh, in order for us to have the kind of, of reckoning personal or institutional. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about an what an institutional reckoning might look like. Um, your book is about your journey, Robert E. Lee and me, uh, and and how you sort of made these discoveries and reflections. How does an institution, as big as the army is, uh, as diverse as it is, how does an institution go about uh, this same kind of, of reckoning? So how as an institution are we going to change? Well, I think we have to start with our history. So if you think about Black History Month, which we're in right now, it's often about the pioneers. So the army, it always talks about Henry O. Flipper, the first a black graduate of West Point, or it talks about Benjamin O. Davis, or it talks about the first division commander, or it talks about all the first of the black experience. What we should talk about as well is the racism in the army. And we have to talk about the ugly parts of American history, uh, the ugly parts of, of the army's history. So one of the things that I do is quote the U.S. Army War College, uh, um, uh, the Negro Manpower Study, the war college in the interwar period with the army planners. And it said, that, that basically paraphrasing that the Negro is not fully human. I mean, the level of racism is so ugly, we have trouble dealing with it. But until we get into our education system and start talking about who we actually have been, we're not going to fix this problem. And I'm not saying that this is the only thing that's going to fix it. We've got to change policies. There are a whole bunch of things. But until we get the, the history right of who we are, we're not going to get it right. And so if we can say, segregation laws, Jim Crow, white terror, lynching, which, by the way, happened to soldiers, um, black disenfranchisement, Confederate monuments, all of those were symbols and pillars of white supremacy, then we're not going to be able to fix it in this institution. So history matters. The who we pick as leaders matters. So I'm very happy to see Secretary Austin. You know, I got to tell you one story about Secretary Austin. He was a cadet in 1972, 71, 72, as a plebe when Richard Nixon tried to put a Confederate monument on Trophy Point. And Cadet Lloyd Austin signed a black manifesto, as they called it, demanding that they not put that on there, demanding that they change the name, which we today have, Buffalo Soldier Field, demanding equality. And by the way, his howitzer quote, his yearbook quote was, young, gifted, and black, quoting a Nina Simone song. So we have the right people in leadership if we pick other leaders like that, if we have diverse communities, if we use our history, and if we don't revert back. I really think that if this country doesn't fight against racism, it reverts to racism. I think this this idea that it requires top-down strong leadership plus grassroots bottom-up you know, voices and action 
And it's going to require, as you said, it's going to require leadership at, at every at every level of the institution, uh, in uniform, out of uniform. It's going to require veterans' voices. It's going to require civilian political oversight. This is this is going to take a, a concerted uh, effort from all of us to really to root it out, to talk about it, to confront it, uh, and then to to figure out how to how to fix it. We're about out of time, but is there is there any last advice that you would give to leaders who are still in uniform, perhaps, uh, about what they can do in their sort of day to day leadership and in existence uh, within the within the army, but also within the other uniformed services, um, as a as a first step or as a way to confront some of this. I think there are two things I'd say. First, uh, the army only really changes when our politicians demand it. And our politicians are now demanding change. And so it's a, we're an obedience-based organization. Get on board. So the first is do it. The second is you've got to educate yourself. And it could be you're educating yourself on your unit, on your post, on your hometown city, on your own life. And that's what I did is believe that, that, that understanding your own past, and you will find racism there. Uh, I guarantee you whatever city you live in in the country, you'll find it there. So learn a little bit more about your soldiers and about where they came from, but learn more about yourself and accept responsibility. All right. So unfortunately, our time uh, today is up, but I want to thank you, Ty, uh, who, again, a a friend, a colleague, a leader and a mentor for me. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on this conversation on A Better Peace. Jackie, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Great uh, to catch up with an old friend. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thanks to all of you for tuning in. Uh, As always, please send us your comments on this episode and all the episodes and send us suggestions for future ones as well. We're always happy to hear from you. We'd like for you to subscribe to A Better Peace if you've not already done so on the podcatcher of your choice. And after you've subscribed, please rate and review this podcast so that others can find it as well and so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one that you've heard today. This conversation is over, but the conversations continue. And until next time for War Room, I'm Jackie Witt. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.